Our scripture lesson this morning is drawn from the 49th Psalm. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heel surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die, Likewise, the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Selah. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry away nothing. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself, for men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beasts that perish. This is the word of the Lord. Like all things having to do with our holy revealed religion, Easter is about the Lord Jesus Christ, and specifically about the promise of eternal life that you see on Easter, when the Lord Christ walks out of the tomb. The Apostle Paul summarizes beautifully in one verse the great hope of Easter. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 20, the Apostle says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The chapter is long, but the verse summarizes our great hope. There had been nobody resurrected before Christ. There had been some people revived. They had gone through a revivification. But on that first Easter day, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, walked out of a very real tomb in a very real body, He could be touched, he could be heard, Uh, he was truly personally himself, and he had been dead. 
He had been dead for three days, and he was now alive again in a way that was no metaphor, a way that was no symbol. He was there, occupying space and time, talking to his disciples, living his life, though dead he had been three days. Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the great resurrection. Christ has raised first by the power of God the Father, and first fruits promise the coming harvest. There is going to come a resurrection of God's people. God had promised that from beginning of time. God had made that promise many times and in many places in the scriptures, and now on the first Easter, the Lord Jesus Christ has lived out before our eyes what that's going to look like. Dead men walking, dead men talking, dead men resuming their lives, and in a way that is not just a revivification, not like what happened to Lazarus, the poor man who was raised from the dead but would have to die again. This would be raising to no more death. Jesus will never die again. And as the first fruits, what he is, we will be. That is the promise of Easter. Jesus Christ physically lives. Jesus Christ really is alive today in his body. Jesus Christ is a real human being living forever. And as first fruits, you are promised that what he is, you will be in that regard. Resurrected, living forever. If that be true, there are certain implications that uh, naturally follow. In fact, you could almost use the crass term political implications. If the people of Jesus Christ are literally promised to raise from the dead, if you are promised that what Christ is bodily, you will be, what does that mean for you in this world at this moment? That's what our psalmist is actually dealing with in Psalm 49. The entirety of the psalm is about the, again, to use the very crass term, the political uh, ramifications of the fact that you will be raised from the dead by the promise of Christ. Our psalmist begins uh, letting us know that his song is not meant just for the people of Israel, not just for the visible church, but he is singing this psalm that all types and all conditions of men will listen to it. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. So this is not localized just to the people of God. This is a message to everyone in every place, in every time. And not only is it simply for every person, the psalmist wants us to know that this song is being sung to every niche of men, both low and high, rich and poor together. You all listen to my song, what I'm getting ready to sing. There is no one too poor that this doesn't affect. 
There is no one too rich that this doesn't have implications for. No matter what your nation, no matter what your situation in life, wherever you may be, whenever you may be, listen to my song. Because I have a message for you, while I kind of work out a message for me. The next couple of verses, the psalmist describes what's going on inside himself as he's singing this song, and it's really very interesting. My mouth shall speak wisdom. So uh, the psalmist is going to speak, and you're going to listen, and there's going to be wisdom, but while he's doing that, he says, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. So the psalmist says, now all mankind listen to me. I'm going to be singing to you. I'm going to be talking to you. You're going to hear wisdom, but I'm going to hear wisdom too. I'm wrestling with a proverb. I'm wrestling with a dark saying. There is something that I need to kind of work through, and you're going to join with me as we do it. Even as I speak, I'm listening. I'm trying to find wisdom. I'm trying to find an answer. We all need an answer to this. So come along and join me. What is the proverb? What is the dark saying that our psalmist is working through? Well, it's verse 5. Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surround me. The psalmist is describing uh, the general estate of human life on planet Earth. You and I have lived through a, a season, an era, where generally we have experienced peace by and large. It is not that there hasn't been violence, it's not that there hasn't been persecution, but Compared to historical world standards, we have lived in a very easy, very peaceful moment. But the Psalms uh, portray human life in the world as being in a dangerous place. And for most of our forefathers, for most of our fellow human beings, uh, wherever they have been, no matter who they have been, When the psalmist says there is iniquity nipping at my heels and surrounding me, trying to harm me, the average human being would go, I totally get that. Uh, The world is a dangerous place. I have people who hate me, and if they could, they would hurt me. That's kind of the nature of the world. And so the psalmist is, is asking, should I be afraid? Because there are people out there with bows. There are people out there with guns. There are people out there uh, working wickedness, and their goal is to harm me. Should I be afraid of that? Well, it's a very valid question. Now, who is it that is surrounding the psalmist and causing him uh, to ask the question? That is in verse 6. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches. So the psalmist is uh, being attacked by those who are dedicated to this life. You'll notice the first line says, they trust in their wealth. Trust is a synonym for belief. You trust in what you believe in, 
If you're believing in something, you're trusting in it. It's an absolute synonym. And for Christians, the issue of trust is at the very heart of the foundation of our lives. The Lord Jesus Christ is known in covenant by trust, by faith. So the psalmist says, there are people around me who want to harm me. They're surrounding me. They're trying to do me in. And they have a trust, but it is nothing like my trust. The psalmist is a man of God, and that comes through in the whole song. But these people trust in their wealth. They are dedicated to it. They believe that it is their strong fortress. They believe it gives them power. And uh, they have the opportunity to harm the psalmist because there is a little bit of truth in this. The second line is that they boast in the multitude of their riches, which suggests that they have the riches to boast in. Rich and powerful people throughout most of human history have been willing to oppress other people, and specifically the people of God. Throughout most eras, in most places, the rich, the powerful, the elite, those who move things and do things, they have hated God, they have taken it out on God's people, Um, the psalmist is looking them in the eye and saying, these very powerful people who want to harm me, should I be afraid of them? As I said, it's a very good question. But then the psalmist begins to consider, what power do these powers in the earth actually possess? They have their wealth, they have their riches, they have... Uh, the things of this natural world that they can make things happen with, but do they have real power? And the psalmist in verse 7 through 9 basically comes to the point of view that they do not. He immediately jumps to man's most basic need. What is man's most most basic need? Well, that is in verse 8. Redemption. Man needs redemption. Listen to verse 7 through 9. None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. What is man's biggest need, his greatest need? Far more than food, clothing, and shelter, far more than anything that the world can provide, what is the gaping hole in every human life? Well, it's that you need to be ransomed from God. You need redemption from God. Because if you have been following along in in the biblical teaching of world history, uh, we're a cursed race. You go back to the book of Genesis and you find out that we only get three chapters before humanity rebels against God and God curses humanity and says life is going to be very hard Bad things are going to happen in the world, and ultimately you're going to go into death. 
That's Genesis chapter 3 and 19. From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. God, your creator, God, your father, God who loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, is also God, your judge, God, your condemner, God, the owner of all the universe, and God who finds you to be sinful. And so you are in that estate before God. God is going to bring death upon you. And make no mistake, scripturally, that is exactly what the Bible says about death. One only needs to jump over to Psalm 90 to have Moses in the Psalms really emphasize this. Listen to Psalm 90, verse 3 through 9. He is speaking to God and he says, You turn man to destruction. You do it, not not others, not the devil. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, or as it's literally, the children of Adam. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. God turns men to dust. God brings sickness and old age. God has an accounting for men that is coming. And it is because of his judgment. It is because he has sentenced the human race to death. And death elongates into what the New Testament calls the second death, which is the lake of fire. It is is hell. And so the psalmist begins to think, do those in power have the ability to ransom people from the wrath of God? On the great day of judgment, can a Bill Gates stand up and say, "Uh, Lord, uh, I want you to know I've got a payment for this guy. I put aside wealth that I will give to you so that he will be ransomed. Although the text itself is even more bold than I just described. The the psalmist asks, can a rich man keep someone from dying even now? They they don't die and wait for the judgment day. Can can a, a rich man, a powerful man, can he ransom and redeem a soul from the wrath of God so he doesn't have to go through that dying and such? Well, the psalmist says, no. Verse 8 in the New King James Version reads, uh, For it is costly, and it shall cease forever. Um, That's a literal translation, but the the meaning seems to be gotten at by the, the Amplified, where it reads, For the redemption of a life is too costly, and the price one can pay can never suffice. These may be the powers of earth, they may have power to make things happen, but the cost of one mere life to be ransomed from the wrath of God is beyond all the wealth of the world. 
There is no power on earth that can pay God so that wrath doesn't happen. And these powerful men, he begins to muse upon them. Do they know that? Does that bother them? Well, the psalmist comes to the conclusion it kind of does. In verse 10, he says, For he sees wise men die, and he here is the powerful, the rich, the, the, the wicked who is oppressing the psalmist. For he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish, and leave their wealth to others. And so the rich and the powerful, those who oppress God's people, those who hate God, those who have put their trust in the things of this world, they watch people around them die, one for one out of people die, Uh, the wise die, and probably that doesn't bother these wicked people, but everybody dies, and even more than that, the last gasp of their breath sees their hand relax and everything that was in it roll out of it. Every possession, every power, every privilege that they possessed, the moment someone dies, it goes away. And the psalmist says it doesn't follow them to the grave. If you are the rich and the powerful and you are trusting in the things of this world, if you are boasting of your riches, that's going to disturb you very much. It doesn't seem fair. You are the powerful on the earth. You have the ability to oppress people now. And yet, one small case of cancer and you're gone. But these are wicked people and they are against God and his truth. And so they begin to try to figure out some way to get around that. And as we continue on, um, the psalmist says they begin to kind of rationalize. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. So, I'm going to come under God's curse. I'm going to go into death. As the psalmist says further on in the psalm, I'm going to go to a place where I'll never see light. But, well, my name will live on. I have been a rich and powerful person. I will dedicate a lot of money to a college and they'll name a dorm after me. Uh, I'll call my home by my name and everybody will remember this was my estate. Uh, I will continue in honor. It'll be kind of a way of living even though I'm dead. Well, uh, that didn't work out real well. It's affirmed by those around them Verse 18 says, while he lives, he blesses himself, and for men will praise you when you do well for yourself. So the the powerful, while they're living and they're amassing wealth and they're they're planning a legacy, those around them say, yeah, you demand. Yeah, this is the way to do it. And after they're gone, there will be those who are inspired by that, and they kind of take the same attitude. Uh, we read, this is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve of their sayings in verse 13. But the reality is very different. Look at verse 14. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, quote-unquote. The morning is a symbol in Scripture of a brand new day, uh, the day of resurrection is, is uh, discussed in that kind of terms. 
the, the day of judgment and the renewal of the world is discussed in that kind of term. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. Or listen to verse 16 and 17. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. So you have... uh, men who are trying to circumvent this curse by saying my name will remain because of my wealth. And the psalmist looks at things objectively and says, that's not going to happen. While you're alive and you're a powerful person, all those around you will say, boy, you've done good. And once you're dead, there will be people who say, you know, really, I kind of wish I could be like him. But the reality is, You go into death, and it never ends. It simply elongates into the second death. It elongates into the lake of fire. You never see light again. As far as this world is concerned, you are gone. Your remains molder away to dirt, and you are in hellish death forever. The wrath of God remains. The psalmist says these people do not, quote, understand. He uses that term. Uh, They don't really understand that the world is about dealing with the issue of being out of reconciliation with God, and you only have a few years to deal with that. They don't really understand that, and they are not ready for the coming morning. They go to their graves totally unprepared for what comes next, and to their graves they go. They ultimately meet the wrath of God in its fullness, and that's the end of the story. But then the psalmist thinks about himself. They don't have power to redeem anyone, but I did mention that the wise die. Uh, What's going to happen to me? Well, verse 15 is the crux of our psalm, the great hope that the psalmist is conveying. In verse 15 he says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Do the the powerful of earth, do they really have power? Well, no, they're going to the grave and staying. Uh, That's where they're going to stay. But as for me, though I'm going to die... Out of the estate of my death, God is going to redeem me from God. God is going to ransom me from God. God is going to act, and I'm laying there dead, and I may have been put there by these powerful people who have surrounded me with their iniquity and they're trying to to destroy me. I may be laying in my grave because of their actions, but the hand of God is going to reach down from heaven, take hold of me, and I am going to live again. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. The cost may be beyond earth's payment, but God has infinitely more than earth. 
And God is going to act. God is going to resurrect me. I'm going to stand upon the earth again in my body, being me. You will be able to touch me. You will be able to hear me. You will be able to see me. I'm going to have my same personality because God will intervene for me. And I will be resurrected. Now, the psalmist here does not state what he bases that hope on. He assumes you know, because, again, the psalms are not written in a vacuum. They are songs of worship of God. And at the very same time in Genesis, when God said, okay, from dust you are to dust you shall return, the world is going to be a bad place, you're going to suffer uh, all sorts of things, God also promised in verse 15 There will be the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. That that means everything the serpent has done, this seed of the woman is going to undo. And one of the things that gets mentioned at the very moment of the curse is you came from dust and you're going to dust. Well, if the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head, this is one of the things he's going to undo. And so the psalmist considers the promise of God. He is a person in the covenant of God. He considers his power in the world, and he says, you know, the movers, the shakers, the wicked, because that tends to be synonymous, they have a lot of power in this world, but considering I'm going to be raised from the dead, and it's not just symbolic, it's not just an empty hope, I'm really going to be me, I'm really going to be in a body, I'm going to be like Christ. He rose out of the grave in a body, Uh, He could do some amazing things, but he was a physical man who could eat fish and talk to his disciples, since that's going to be me. What power do they have? And the answer seems to be none. On the basis of the promise of God of resurrection... What can the enemies of God and the gospel really do to you? They can kill your body. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was talking on similar topics, in Matthew chapter, uh, Luke chapter 12, verse, uh, what verse I got there, Garvin? Which one? Four and five. Uh, Christ said this about God. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. The powers of this world can only kill the body. Now, they can do that pretty competently, and they can do that extremely painfully. But in the long term, considering eternity and belonging to God, you will have eternity. What can they do? They can do absolutely nothing. There are two Selahs in our psalm, and as you know, the term Selah means, now I want you to stop singing for a moment and really think about what you've sung. The first one comes after verse 12 and 13. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, 
does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Now, stop singing for a while and really, really think about that. Um, They were an honor, but they were foolish. And being foolish, they're no better than brute beasts, and they're going to perish forever. And then the second Selah is after 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Stop and think about that. Those are the two poles of our soul. You have those who will put their trust in this world, and they will live a life of wickedness based upon their trust. They're no better than a, than a rat. They're no better than an alley cat that perishes and is no more. But I will see resurrection. I will experience the promise of God I will stand upon the earth in my body and not another, and I shall behold him with my very eyes. What shall we fear from the powerful? Well, nothing. We shall go to a joyous grave, and out of that joyous grave shall one day come a song of victory when we are resurrected. The psalmist seems to be telling us resurrection should allay any fear. And this is not a theme that only appears here. Going back to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when he preached on the resurrection, uh, this is how he ends the chapter, beginning at verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, And this mortal must put on immortality, so that when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, notice, by the way, his therefore. Notice the punchline of resurrection. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Be steadfast, be immovable, do the works of God, build the kingdom of God. Why? Because you will live forever because of the promise of resurrection. Because Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb, you will walk out of the tomb at the great resurrection. That means you are capable of doing things that eternally matter. 
if you were going to eternally perish, every work of your hand would eternally perish. The world would be like you were never here. You would be a meaningless blip. But the resurrection says it's not so. The resurrection says God will raise you to life. His enemies, well, they feel the sting of death. They feel the sting of Hades, but not you. Therefore, be immovable, be steadfast, be hard-headed towards evil, serve the Lord, you will come back. Consider one of the most comforting passages of the New Testament, the last section of Romans, Romans uh, of chapter 8 of Romans, Romans 31 to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Which is a very long way of saying, uh, the wicked's iniquity is surrounding me and nipping at my heels. Will that separate me from God? It takes place. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, We are accounted as sheep from the slaughter. Will that separate us from God's love and care? No. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, the things the power of the earth depend upon, No created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You will notice that Paul, when he began this, he referred to the resurrection. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. Furthermore is also risen. The Christian message requires an actual resurrection. If the resurrection is merely a symbol, if the resurrection is just a religious way of talking, if the resurrection is just a doctrine without substance, you have no hope, and the psalmist would have to write a very different song. What we would have is a situation of nihilism, where nothing matters. But what happened on that first Easter is the fulfillment of God's promise of the resurrection of the dead God said it, we believed it, but we hadn't seen it until we did. The followers of Jesus Christ saw him, heard him, touched him, ate fish with him, heard him say, peace be to you, and he was a living, breathing promise of your resurrection. Without it, no hope, you're nothing. With it, 
Can anyone actually harm you? Can the servants of death and hell, who certainly outnumber us and fill the world, can they really harm you? The scriptures say no, because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise, and he is risen from the dead.